so much that for us is strange about Revelation is strange because we don't know the Old Testament as much as we should. Because lots, I mean, almost all the imagery and the, the odd ideas um, actually are images picked up from the Old Testament prophets. Um, and the more we know and we spot the Old Testament references, that I think the less strange Revelation will be and the more we let the whole biblical thought world kind of inform how we understand it. Welcome to The Blessed Podcast. I'm Nancy Guthrie, author of the newly released Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation begins and ends with a promise that those who hear and keep what is written in it will be blessed. And I want that blessing, don't you? So we need to hear what this book has to say to us and then figure out what it's going to mean to live in light of it. On this podcast, I'm having conversations with people who can help us to hear it and to understand its message to us and help us reckon with what it will mean for us to live in light of that message. My guest today is Andrew Satch. Andrew, thank you for being willing to talk through the book of Revelation with us. Hey, Nancy. Hello, everyone. So Andrew serves part-time at Grace Church Greenwich in London and part-time as a tutor on the Cornhill training course, which helps to train other preachers. He is the co-author of several books, and I like it, Andrew, what you say about your book titles, that you call them decreasingly imaginative (laughs) titles. One is called Dig Deeper. The next one, Dig Even Deeper. And then we've got Dig Deeper into the Gospels. And I think you're probably working on some other things too, aren't you, Andrew? Uh, Yes, we've just um, submitted a manuscript for a book targeted at agnostics called Are You 100% Sure You Want to Be Agnostic? Ah, and when will that come out? I think next, uh, early next year. All right, terrific. Recently, Andrew and his preaching partner at Grace Church Greenwich, Andrew Latimer, preached through the book of Revelation. And they were doing that as I was working on the manuscript for my book, Blessed. And I was so thrilled to discover it, especially that they were a few weeks ahead of me. (laughs) So as I was working through Revelation, I could occasionally pull up their most recent message and hear what they had to say and learn from them. Now, it would seem to me, Andrew, that you were seeking to avoid any kind of drama or controversy or pandering to the fears of your audience in the way you titled your series. And obviously, I'm being very tongue in cheek because you called it Armageddon 666 and the end of the world. (laughs) The title might lead one to think that maybe you're trying to get our attention. Is that it? Um, It is that. And also, I mean, the book of Revelation is very famous, isn't it? Even amongst people who aren't Christians, because we've all seen horror movies where it's been hijacked um, and everyone's heard of the Antichrist. I mean, all my non-Christian friends have heard about 666, but um, they've no idea what the book of Revelation actually is about. So, yeah, it was an attention grabber. But also just to show people this is a book that we kind of know about, but also know very little about. Well, I remember when I interviewed you a couple of times for my Help Me Teach the Bible podcast, I remember you telling listeners you were, in a sense, handing off a skill to us in terms of trying to understand the Bible. You said that whenever we study the Bible, we want to go bigger and go older. 
So what do you mean by that? And it seems to me that that's an important tool to use when we look at the book of Revelation, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, go bigger. I mean, don't read a verse um, and don't even read a chapter, but read read the whole book. Because the key to understanding a, a single verse in Revelation is the context of that verse and the context of that chapter. Um, I remember years ago coming back to my house and I had a, a friend staying with me um, who was quite a young Christian and he pulled up on on the computer this amazingly complicated chart sort of connecting individual verses from Revelation to individual verses from Ezekiel to and it was all over the place in terms of cross-references and there were some really wild and wacky ideas there and I thought gosh it's made it a lot more complicated because what you really need to do is read verse one in the context of verse two you know don't don't be leaping to a cross-reference so quickly that you don't see the whole picture so you know in revelation you don't really understand the seven seals unless you understand the seven trumpets and you don't understand the seven trumpets unless you understand the seven bowls they kind of they all work together um so that's go bigger well let's let's read the whole book and go older um it's just a a way of saying so much that for us is strange about revelation is strange because we don't know the old testament as much as we should because lots, I mean, almost all the imagery and the, the odd ideas um, actually are images picked up from the Old Testament prophets. Um, and the more we know and we spot the Old Testament references, that I think the less strange Revelation will be, and the more we let the whole biblical thought world kind of inform how we understand it. Yeah, as I was writing Blessed, experiencing the promise of the book of Revelation, I found that nearly every chapter required me to read the chapter at hand through the lens of the Old Testament if I was going to get what John was seeking to communicate. But it's also interesting that most New Testament writers, when they quote from the Old Testament, they start out by saying, you know, the prophet so-and-so says, so that you know for sure that they're quoting the Old Testament. But Revelation isn't like that. The Old Testament is there in allusions. John doesn't set out the Old Testament bits by putting quotes around them. Um, In some cases, you just realize that what is happening in the vision John recounts sounds familiar, or that the creatures or images sound very familiar, and that an Old Testament passage is clearly significant in John's thinking as he writes. And that helps us in interpreting what he writes. Absolutely. And I think the the other thing is that on the one hand, there's just a huge variety of different Old Testament books that John picks up on, but he really has also favorite books or favorite texts. So, you know, once you realize that, say, Daniel 7 is important in Revelation and you get that right in chapter one, where he has this vision of the one, who, the voice that's speaking to him and um, he has white wool hair as white as snow and eyes like a flame of fire and so on and you think that sounds familiar and you think that's daniel 7 that's the vision of the son of man coming before the ancient of days once you turn to daniel 7 and you refresh your memory you find that there's a lot more of daniel 7 all the way through revelation it's a chapter he keeps coming back to again and again Um, and you know similarly psalm 2 the one who will dash the um the nations to pieces like pottery with an iron rod um, that comes up several times in Revelation. So I think 
it's hard to start with and you don't know where to look. But once you find the key Old Testament texts, you use them again and again and again. I like something Peter Lightheart said in his commentary on Revelation. He said that John did have an ecstatic visionary experience, but what he saw reflected the events and institutions of the Bible. And when he recorded them, he naturally recorded them in the vernacular he knew, the vernacular of the scriptures, that he writes with scripture rather than about it. It helped me to think that there's a reason that these visions sound so familiar to what is in the Old Testament. First of all, it's because John is seeing the same thing that the Old Testament prophets saw. So it's no wonder it's going to sound familiar. He's seeing into the same realities. But also, John was a person who was saturated with the Old Testament. And as you said, he's got a few favorites that seem to be shaping how he's writing down what he saw. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I love that um, that quote from Lightheart because, I mean, sometimes people tell you that to understand the New Testament, you need to know a lot, a lot about New Testament times. So, you know, you can find in the commentaries lots of detail about the seven churches, you know, what was Ephesus like and what was Laodicea like and, and so on. And a historical background undoubtedly is of some use, but the, the biggest background that we need to understand the New Testament is the Old Testament. And it's like within our Bibles, we already have the background that we need. So, you know, it's not that we haven't got any space for the archaeologists or the historians. They can tell us some things. But I think it's very empowering to know that a Christian with a Bible essentially has what they need by way of background already. Yes, definitely. Why don't we work our way through some Old Testament texts that John clearly has on his mind that are a big part of the fabric of what he writes in Revelation? And I think we have to start with Genesis, Genesis 1 through 3, because in Genesis 1 through 3, we have this garden and we've got Adam and Eve and there's a tree of life there. Well, those things are going to reappear for us in Revelation We've got the creation of heaven and earth, and in Revelation 21, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There in Genesis chapter 3, we're presented with the crisis of the story of the Bible. That crisis comes to its resolution in the book of Revelation, especially in regard to that ancient serpent and the curse that he brought into the world, and this conflict that has been going on ever since we read in Genesis 3 that God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. It seems to me like we can't get revelation unless we get what happened right there. Absolutely. I think, yeah, both of those, those big turning points in the Bible history, the creation of the world and then the fall of the world, um, both come in Revelation. Um, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned the tree of life in um, that comes back, um, and then the new heavens and the new earth that come back. Um, in both those cases, actually, Revelation is is reading Genesis through the lens of the prophets. So it's not even just a simple quote from Genesis chapter one, but when he talks about a new heaven and a new earth, that's Isaiah chapter sixty five. Isaiah is alluding to Genesis chapter one or when he talks about the tree of life on both sides of the river um, that is as how Ezekiel talks about Genesis chapter two so one of the things I love about the Bible and I'm sort of discovering this more and more is 
it's not just that the Old Testament alludes to, sorry, the New Testament alludes to the Old Testament, but the prophets allude back to the law, and then the New Testament alludes back to the prophets that alludes back to the law. So you've actually got a kind of a whole series of cross references built into scripture whereby the prophets themselves, people like Isaiah and Ezekiel, were already harnessing the imagery of revelation as they looked ahead to God's salvation plan. And they were saying, um, it's not just that God's going to sort out the problems of Israel. God is going to renew the whole of creation. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, says Isaiah. And um, it's not just that um, there'll be some sort of return to Eden, but we're going to get to an even better Eden. Eden only had one tree of life in the middle of the garden. But um, in Ezekiel's vision, there's going to be trees of life all the way down both sides of this river that flows from the temple. And so Revelation is picking up the kind of the Old Testament through the lens that the prophets already gave us looking forward. Um, I think, yeah, the, the, the great future where we're looking forward to when God puts the world right it actually isn't a return to Genesis one at all. It's a, it's a completion. It, it's getting to a new creation that's even better than the original one, or is the the fulfilment of the original one. So um, that the heavenly city is a bit like the Garden of Eden, but just a lot better. And I think yeah, the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, help us to see that. As you point these things out, it just makes me realize, you know, Andrew, that most things in the world. The closer you look at them, the more they fall apart. (laughs) And yet, but the Bible, the closer you look at it, the more it hangs together. Because what you're talking about, these Old Testament prophets, that they're working from the law. And now we see John is going to work from these Old Testament prophets. We see its connectedness, its cohesiveness. And why is that? It's because it has one divine author. And all of that helps me to esteem the Bible more. So rather than look at the Bible closely and it falls apart, no. You look closer at the Bible. And the more you realize what a magnificent book the Bible is, and that it actually must be written by one divine author. We had a, a baptism at our church recently and a student um, at a university here in Greenwich um, was baptised and she gave her testimony and said um, one of the things she's discovering is exactly this about the Bible, how amazingly cohesive it is. And she said it's really strengthened her faith because you think, well, how how could this possibly have been done by a bunch of human beings across um, a thousand years? You know, it, 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 the Bible itself is 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 a miracle and John's mastery of the scriptures i mean no no doubt he read his old testament a lot but it takes the mind of the holy spirit to put it together so so astonishingly as he does in revelation yeah well let's jump to exodus when we get to the book of exodus there's a number of things there that john seems to draw upon there's a whole picture of a people in captivity who are being persecuted there is the lamb This is a central place in the Old Testament where we see how a lamb sacrificed is going to provide salvation when judgment comes. And we're going to see that again in Revelation. But some of the most significant imagery in Exodus is the plagues. So how does recalling what happened in the plagues, 
back in Exodus. Help us when we get to the book of Revelation. So the plagues come up in the, um, they come up a little bit when the trumpets are sounded, the seven trumpets. Um, so, uh, for example, uh, chapter eight, verse seven, the first angel blew his trumpet, there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. Um, and then, um, then we have the waters becoming um, bitter. Um, then we have the darkness, like the plague of darkness. So the trumpets have got lots of plague-like allusions to them. But then when we get to the seven bowls, um, the allusions, I think, get even stronger. So we get not only some of the plagues that God sends, but also, do you remember in Exodus, the, the Egyptian magicians can add extra plagues. They can make their own frogs which is, um, I always think that's not a lot of help. So God is sending plagues on Pharaoh and the contribution of Pharaoh's magicians is to create extra frogs. You know, we don't, that's the last one. <laughs> well, we're impressed, but that's not helpful. <laughs> um, but in interesting, in, in the as we look at the bowls of God's wrath being poured out, um, not only do you have the um, the plagues that God sends, but you also have the... Um, demonic spirits performing signs which is exactly the same as happened in in exodus so i think you know there's nothing new under the sun as as ecclesiastes observed and you really see that that this idea of um god sending trouble and counterfeit demons making trouble um come together i think you need those two lenses on suffering in the world that this is sent by god in his judgment on the world he's in charge there's no moment in revelation where god is not absolutely in charge of what's happening um, and that's really important for john's readers you know they're experiencing tribulation and suffering and some christians have been killed already and martyred um, other christians are marginalized and for them to know god is really really in charge of what's going on and even the thing the trouble in the world is sent by god in his anger on the world that's important. But also, um, there is a devil, and some of the trouble in the world is sent by the devil. And and Revelation, I mean, like lots of the Bible, it manages to combine these two things. So it's not that God and the devil are kind of equally powerful. God is the only creator, the only ruler. But um, trouble is a, is a mixture of things that the Lord is sending in his judgment and things that Satan is allowed to do insofar as God gives him permission um, to bring trouble. And I think both of those lenses are needed. You know, why has this persecution come on me? Well, I've got an enemy. I've got a dragon. He's after me. The devil is is against me. But why is this trouble coming on the world? God is still on his throne. He's not stopped being in charge. Um, and I think those two lenses of satanic trouble and a world under God's judgment, I think we need both of them. And, you, and I think you get both them in the, in the Exodus, you know, the trouble, the oppression brought by Pharaoh, um, the opposition to God's people, and also the trouble brought by God in judgment on Pharaoh. And may, maybe we get caught out because we, we read about plagues and monsters and and we think, well, these must be satanic. But some of the things that we thought were satanic actually come from from God. In other words, God is in charge of this this trouble, this suffering because he's he's angry he's angry at um at sin and um, he's also angry at the way that his people are being oppressed and he's going to vindicate them there is going to be judgment 
So I think I think the Exodus thing kind of helps you with that. And then you get the Passover, the lamb who was slain, you get the plagues, and then you get the great um, victory song. Yes. The Moses song by the sea that he sings in Exodus chapter 15 comes up also in Revelation. Yes, that was very significant to me as I looked at it. It is comparing it to what happened in Egypt that helps us to understand what's happening in this Revelation picture. You've got these people. They have been enslaved. They've been harmed by the Satan figure in their experience, the Pharaoh, and he's putting their infant sons to death, which is a picture of the persecution the people John was writing to are experiencing. And as Revelation goes along, we see that the people are going to be brought out from that place of harm and danger, and they're going to be brought through, as it were, a Red Sea. They're going to be brought to the other side of a place of suffering. Pharaoh's army being destroyed by a wall of water presents a picture to us of the day when we enter into the new creation that we'll be able to look back and see that God has destroyed all who sought our harm, that all of his enemies who have been taking out their fury on God's people are going to be destroyed. And I think that helps us to understand why John writes that we are going to sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So this song we're going to sing, it's very much like the song of Moses that the people sang after they were delivered from Pharaoh's army through the Red Sea. But this is the song of the Lamb, a song that celebrates a greater deliverance, a deliverance of not just one nation, but a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We're going to be able to see how God has defeated our enemies in such a way that it has made our salvation possible. Yeah. And I think that that theme of vindication and vengeance is such a strong one in Revelation. And I think it doesn't have, sometimes it doesn't have the place it should have in our Christian thinking. So, you know, rightly, we, we emphasize how beautiful it is when we can turn the other cheek and when we can forgive those who've wronged us and love our enemies, all these things that the Lord Jesus taught. But actually, there is also a place for vengeance in the Bible. And it's it's okay to want that, to want those who've wronged God's people to, to pay for it. Now, I mean, the best thing is for our enemies to come to trust in Jesus and have him atone for their sins. That's the best outcome. But those who continue to defy Jesus and hurt his people will face God's vengeance. And that I think that's such a big theme in Revelation. And so chapter six you know the big cry of the saints um they cried out with a loud voice sovereign lord holy and true how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth and as you say the the destruction of um of babylon the destruction of the beast um the destruction of the false prophet there's a lot of rejoicing over harm coming to the baddies the enemies because only as the enemies are destroyed can god's people truly be free i seem to remember from your sermon series that when you got to the trumpets you focused a lot on the plagues in egypt and how they help us to understand what is happening in that passage in revelation and as you mentioned the plagues seem to be an even stronger basis for what we see when we get to the bowls but when i think about the trumpets i think back to joshua 6 yeah 
The people are getting ready to make their first foray into the promised land. And God has told them that he's going to give Jericho to them. They are told to march around the city for seven days blowing trumpets. And then on the seventh day, they blow the seventh trumpet and the enemy is defeated and the people go in and take possession of the city that God has given to them. Do you think it's a stretch to connect this passage in Revelation to Joshua 6? No, I do, I do think it's a stretch at all. And I I love how it can be both and often in, I mean, it's, it, is, it is the Exodus and it's also Joshua. Um, and I think Peter Lightheart also argues maybe it's also creation. I mean, the number seven in the Bible is a big thing, isn't it? Say seven days of creation, seven days of marching around Jericho, seven trumpets, seven churches, seven seals, seven bowls. I mean, there's, there's there's lots of sevens, and I think it there can be multiple connotations, multiple allusions. I think the trumpets. I mean, the one thing that's clear just from the chapter itself is that the um, the trumpets are blown by the angels who serve God. So again, these aren't. This isn't the future in the hands of some sort of demonic power. This is Jesus calling the shot, saying, "Sound the trumpet, please." And it's just another way of emphasizing he he's in charge of all that happens and it's part of his victory. And that's that's really amazing when you get to um, trumpet five and six, where as the trumpet sounds, it really does look like the release of, of demons. And, um, you know, the, the, he's given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit and he opens it and all these locusts looking like scorpions come out Um and I think, again, as I was saying, that those two things, that Jesus is in charge and yet Satan is real and demonic powers are real, and they go together. So Jesus sends the angel to play the trumpet. That gives permission to these demons to come and um, and bring harm on the earth. But they can only do what he allows them to do because they're not permitted to harm God's people. And I think, yeah, the trumpets tell you that God's in charge, but God's in charge even of allowing evil horrors within the limits that he set on the way to the final victory. But I think you're right with Jericho, because as the seventh trumpet is sounded, well, then there's great celebration, loud voices in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And if you know Handel's Messiah, you want to start singing the Hallelujah Chorus at that point. Exactly. Shall we sing? <laughs> Let's move on to Ezekiel and Daniel. As you mentioned, these are two books that seem to give John words and imagery to describe what he saw. So let's think first about Ezekiel. What do we find in Ezekiel that seems to be heavy on John's mind? Yeah, thanks. Well, the first thing I want to say about Ezekiel is so the, the, the vision of the throne in heaven in chapter four and around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, the first living creature, a lion, the second, an ox, the third, the face of a man, the fourth living creature, like an eagle. I mean, this is straight out of Ezekiel chapter one and two. It's the vision that Ezekiel has by the Kibar Canal. And the the imagery of God's throne room is Ezekiel imagery, but it's also Isaiah imagery. Because he then goes on to say that the four living creatures, each of them had six wings full of eyes round and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, 
who was and is and is to come. And that is from Isaiah's vision of the Lord in the, the year that King Isaiah died in Isaiah chapter six. Now, what's really interesting to me is that John isn't being exact in taking, you know, this is literally exactly the same way as it looked to Ezekiel or exactly the same way as it looked to Isaiah, but he's combining elements of both. So Ezekiel's living creatures with Ezekiel's faces, lion, ox, eagle, man, have six wings, which is the Isaiah's seraphim number of wings, and they sing the Isaiah's seraphim song, holy, holy, holy. Now, I, th- I think this is really important because some people come to Revelation and they want it to all be kind of exactly true and exactly the same number with exactly the same numbers. And this just tells me that isn't how John is working. He's he's not dealing in, you know, if you said, oh, exactly how many wings do they have? Do they have the Ezekiel number of wings or the or the Isaiah kind of wing? It's, it's the wrong question. Um, he's saying, let me draw together the imagery of the Old Testament of God's throne room that shows you his glory and his power as creator. But he he doesn't mind combining both. So that that's the first thing I noticed about Ezekiel. It's kind of Ezekiel, but it's not exact. Ezekiel combined with Isaiah chapter four. I think that's important to say. As I was working on the personal Bible study questions that'll go along with my revelation study, the person helping me was saying, it's not exact. How can you say it's referring to that because it doesn't say exactly that? So I think you've hit on something important. We can't force the exactness. Rather, we have to understand that this is imagery that is being presented to us. And while there is correspondence, there's not always exactness. I actually got my godson, he was 10 at the time. We, he's got a blackboard um, in his um, kitchen. And I um, I used to get him to help me prepare my, is it my Revelation sermons. And he really enjoyed it. And I think it just shows that Revelation isn't too complicated for a 10-year-old to understand. But one week I said to him, Jack, you need to look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2 and look at Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and I want you to tell me what is the same about the living creatures and what has changed. And, and he really you know, he really enjoyed it, and we tried to draw them, you know, with the eagle and the lion and everything. But um, he could see, oh, there's so much that's the same, and there's some things that are different. And that I think that's the point, as you say, it's that there's correspondence, but not it's not there to tell us exactly what it's going to look like with our physical eyes, because he's seeing it with his spiritual eyes. This is a vision. It's not... You know, exact reality um yeah so ezekiel in that way and then i mean it comes it just comes up again and again and again we've already spoken about the tree of life on both sides of the river so i love that chapter of ezekiel and that in ezekiel that tells us that the the river of life that brings the tree of life with the leaves of the earth the healing of the nations the river comes from the middle of the temple the place of sacrifice and that is where all these blessings flow and of course revelation picks up on that that the lamb right at the center of the um, of the city is the source of the blessing of life for the city. Um, you have... And you're speaking of the last chapters of Ezekiel, right? Beginning in Ezekiel 40? Yes, is it in 47, I think? I always get confused between Ezekiel 43 and 47, but it's one of those two. Near the end, you have the vision of this new temple, or as Greg Beale describes it, the garden city temple, because Ezekiel uses yes. these three kinds of imagery. And we see in Revelation that John does the same thing. He describes the new creation as a garden and as a city, the new Jerusalem, and as a new temple with a holy of holies that covers the earth. 
So it's clear that John gets that from Ezekiel to describe what the new creation will be like in those terms. I've got the chapter, it's Ezekiel um, 47. And it's an amazing picture because the, the river goes from the temple and flows into the Dead Sea. But as the water hits the Dead Sea, the salt water becomes fresh and it teems with many fish. And then he says in verse 12, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. Their fruit will not fail. They'll bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. And then when the tree of life turns up in um, Revelation 22, it's on both sides of the river and its leaves are for healing and it bears its fruit every month. I don't know much about gardening, Nancy, so I never understood the um, importance of this until someone explained to me that fruit trees, you get a crop once a year, <laughs> say 12 crops a year. That's quite a lot of, that's quite a lot of apples. Um, but yeah, so it's just a beautiful picture. Um, and yeah, what I mean, what do you, if you didn't know that it was from Ezekiel, I think you'd still think it was a beautiful picture. It's not like it's a special code you have to unlock, but you just see it more beautifully and it, it evokes the whole image that Ezekiel had had shared and you get that all over again. So I, I don't think we want to have the the worry unless I spotted the cross-reference, I wouldn't have understood it. I don't think it functions like that. But with the cross-reference, I just see it more deeply and more beautifully um, and in more dimensions. Maybe what it helps us with, and, and not just this passage, but so many of them, is that it has been so deeply ingrained in so many of us. I, I don't know if it's the same in the UK as it is for us here in the States, but there is such an impulse because of the kind of teaching we've had on Revelation that our first instinct is to look at modern history to help us understand the imagery that we see in Revelation. We're looking in the newspaper or in the news to try to figure out what it represents. So I think the most significant thing here is that, no, we are not looking around at the newspaper or in the news for some sort of correspondence. We're looking where John was looking or where he was getting these things from, which was Old Testament imagery. And that helps us locate it in the right place, therefore, to think rightly about it. Yeah, I mean, Revelation, it's a vision that John receives, but it's also a letter that John sends on Jesus' behalf, you know, to the seven churches, write what you see and send it to the seven churches. And I think in some ways we should read it like we read it any other letter in the New Testament. You know, Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus in the first century. Revelation was written to the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea in the first century. So it'd be very odd if it had a meaning that only made sense in the 21st century that would have been inaccessible to people living in Ephesus when they received the letter. I mean, it was a letter to them. And, you know, it, it's a letter to us as well, because he who has near let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, that the Spirit continues to speak these things to every church. But it, it must make sense to that church. So we haven't gotten yet to the book that sometimes seems to be the most vivid in John's imagination, and that is the book of Daniel, especially Daniel chapters 7, 10, and 12. So tell us what you think about John's dependence on the book of Daniel. Why that book? So um, Greg Beale in his commentary helpfully says the clue to Daniel is actually in chapter 1, verse 1, when John talks about the things that must soon take place. 
And that could be an allusion to um, Daniel chapter 2, 28 and 29. So even from the first verse of Revelation, if you know Daniel, you've got ears to hear the echo. You think maybe this could be important. Um, and then, um, as I say, in the end of Revelation chapter 1, he turns to hear, to see the voice that is speaking to him. And he gets this Daniel 7 vision. Um, again, it makes our point from Ezekiel that this is not exact. So if you go through the description in, in Daniel 7, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Divine Messiah, comes before the Ancient of Days and is given um, glory, dominion and a kingdom that all peoples and nations should serve him. And there's a description in Daniel 7 of the Ancient of Days and there's a description of the Son of Man. And in John and Revelation, he slightly mixed them together. So he sees the vision of the Son of Man, but then in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, which is, that's what the Ancient of Days looks like. So he's got two different characters in Daniel, and then kind of combined them, or at least mixed the characteristics. And again, he's not being exact. I think it's I think it's deliberate, because he's saying the, the Son of Man, who comes before the Ancient of Days, is so godlike as to share the very attributes of God. I mean, it's, it's the doctrine of the Trinity, we're, really, we're seeing. There's, there's two characters here, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, and yet they are kind of one. So I think it's a, it's a little glimpse into the Trinity um, there. But Daniel 7, once you, once you realise this, I mean, it's important for the whole of the New Testament, isn't it? The Son of Man coming with the clouds. Yeah, that little phrase. It, it makes me think of when Jesus used that phrase as a signal of saying, remember what you've been anticipating in what Daniel wrote about. I'm the one. It's happening here. And John picks it up as well. There's a lot of debate about whether this refers to Jesus' ascension or to Jesus' return. So the, the passage where Jesus talks about coming with the clouds, does it mean, I mean, it's, it's made more tricky for us because in Greek, the word for coming and the word for going is the same word. So is he coming with the clouds or is he going with the clouds? And um, I think I think it's both, actually, because Jesus ascends at the ascension and the clouds hide him from sight. He ascends from earth to the ancient of days to sit on the throne of his father it's an ascension to his throne of judgment but also he's going to return and i love that bit in acts where they look up into the sky and and they they get the question why brothers why are you looking up into the sky this lord jesus who was taken up for you from you into heaven will return in the same way that you saw him go so i think jesus ascends with the clouds and will return with the clouds um uh, but he goes to his place of enthronement and then will return at the end of the ages. So um, you, you realize this is from Daniel 7. You start reading Daniel 7. And I think this is what I'd encourage everyone to do with these allusions. Don't just pick out the cross-reference verse, but read the whole cross-reference chapter. So you read the whole of Daniel 7. And I was amazed when I did this. I thought, wow, this is almost the whole plot of the book of, of Revelation. It's not just that Jesus ascends to the Ancient of Days and is given um, authority to judge over the nations. Um, that takes you up until Daniel 7, verse 14. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You get that far. And then 
uh, you suddenly discover that there's a beast who is still rampaging. Even though Jesus is already enthroned, um, this fourth beast with teeth of iron and claws of bronze that devours and breaks in pieces and stamped on what's left, um, it makes war against God's people. So there's this strange paradox. We we tend to divide the world maybe into the time before Jesus conquers and then the time after Jesus conquers. You know, so it's it's chaos now and then Jesus wins victory. But in Revelation, as in Daniel seven, it goes Jesus wins victory, and then it's chaos, and then the victory is finally realised. And I think that's that's the key to understand the timeline according to Revelation. It's the same as the timeline according to Daniel. Jesus is ascended and enthroned, but evil is still allowed to rampage over the world. Daniel 7 verse 21, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. That's the strange paradox of the church, isn't it? You're thinking, I thought we were supposed to be on the winning side. Like, why is the church being defeated all the time um, in the world today? I thought we were meant to be winning. And, and then you realize in Daniel, no, this was the plan. Jesus has already won. But he allows this time of the beast to rampage and to trample the church until the end when the final vindication comes. And I, I think that's exactly where the church in Revelation is. I think it's exactly where the church today is. Jesus reigning, but we're being trampled. That actually seems to be at the very heart of the message of the book of Revelation. We think of who it is written to. It's written to people in the first century who are experiencing persecution and are being put to death. And of course, we know that throughout history, and as you said, even in our day, in fact, very much in our day, though we in the West may be far removed from it, those who declare and live out an allegiance to Christ in various parts of the world are being put to death for it. We're in this this interval between um, almost everything is complete and yet we're waiting for something. And the way that that's captured in Revelation is, I mean, it's the question as the seals are open, how long, O oh Lord, before you will avenge us? Because there's this, there's this wait in the seals. But also then um, the delay before the last one. So you get six seals opened and then you get a massive delay of, the whole of chapter seven and then the seventh seal is opened and you get the same with the trumpets you get um seven trumpets or six trumpets are blown and then a massive delay of the whole of chapter 10 and 11 and then the seventh trumpet so it's almost like you go you've got six trumpets and then you're waiting for two chapters before the final and we're in this waiting for it all to be wrapped up all to be completed time and the question is well why is god delaying what are we supposed to do while we're waiting and i i love this because in chapter 11 in the middle of this interval before the last trumpet um he talks about the um the way in which god's two witnesses are killed um and people rejoice over their death i mean it's a terrible picture of how people hate the gospel and they're trampled and there's a party, you know, they'll, the people on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange gifts once these two evangelists have died. But then amazingly, um, in chapter 11, verse 13, 
um, the rest of the people were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And I think it's, I think the point is God's waiting and there's this period where the church is trampled, but the church continues to bear witness to the gospel and in martyrdoms and in witness, um, people will turn to the Lord and that's why we're left here. And it's actually, it's actually specifically when people continue to witness to Jesus, despite the persecution, that's the key that brings others in. And I think that's why God's, that's why God's waiting. You know, he hasn't finished doing that yet. He hasn't finished the, the gathering in of his people. And then when he has the final trumpet, the rejoicing, the hallelujah chorus. I love the way the gospel is interwoven in that passage. It speaks to those who, in John's day, as well as our day, are in a sense being trampled. It presents it in a way that shows us there was one who went before us who was trampled, and that is Christ himself. And it presents those being trampled in the same sense as Jesus, dead for three days, and then they arise. It's such a beautiful picture of hope. Yes, just as Christ suffered, you can expect to suffer. But there's also this gospel hope that just as he was raised, so you will be raised. And so give out the gospel. Take hold of this solid hope because this day of resurrection is coming. Yeah. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood upon their feet. Yeah. The resurrection of believers like the resurrection of the sun. I mean, interestingly, even that is from Ezekiel. So the um, the breath of life entered somebody and them standing to their feet is that's almost a direct quote from Ezekiel. And yet, as you say, it's seen um, it's seen as it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus and the breath of life entered him and he stood on his feet at the resurrection. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for walking us through these Old Testament passages that help us to understand Revelation. Uh, perhaps we could close this way. Having taught through Revelation, lots of people have lots of ideas about what the book of Revelation is all about and what its message is for us today. So I wonder, have you come up with a way to summarize it? Let's just say you're on an elevator and you have just a few floors and they ask, what is Revelation all about What's your answer? I would say Jesus has conquered evil and he rules over the universe. And yet evil, though defeated, has not yet been destroyed. And all of the forces of evil are targeted against God's church. But one day, as Jesus returns, it will be destroyed. Such a great hope to hold on to today, isn't it? It is. And the, and the more so, the more we suffer, I think. That it's amazing that the, the passages of the Bible that say most about God being in charge and most about the severity of his judgment are the books of the Bible written to people who are having a hard time. You know, God's, God is ruling. God will vindicate you. Um, God will bring justice. So just hold on. It's that they, Those words to the church in Philadelphia, which is just really struggling, just hold on to what you have. Just keep, keep going. Thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate you giving us your time and insight. 
Thanks very much, Nancy. This has been The Blessed Podcast, a Crossway podcast hosted by Nancy Guthrie, the author of Blessed, Experiencing the Promise of the Book of Revelation. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of The Blessed Podcast as we seek to hear and keep what is written in the Book of Revelation and thereby experience its promised blessedness. Blessedness.